Your Bibles with you will be in the book of James this morning. The privilege of uh, preaching through James. We started when we were uh, out in uh, the tent uh, a couple falls ago, so it's neat to be able to to, to return uh, every once in a while. Um, I think that uh, this is an important passage because God wants us to be people who pray. And uh, this passage is going to help us uh, learn about our ongoing uh, prayer and the kinds of things we ought to be praying for, why we should pray. And uh, so I trust that we'll be uh, blessed by God's word. We'll be in James 5, 13 through 18, and I'll read it for us in just a minute. Um, We do want to be a praying people. And I think that probably all of you would say, yeah. I want to be a a, a praying person. We want that to characterize our church. And I'm confident that you believe that God is powerful. You know that God is sovereign over all, that everything happens according to his plan for his glory, ultimately for our good. And that's why as we go into Thanksgiving week, why we thank God, right? We thank God because of what he gives, right? We give credit to him, and we rejoice in thanking him. We should thank him every week. So we're a people who believe in God's power. We're also people who believe that God answers prayer. As we think about the Lord's Prayer, you're people who pray that God advances his kingdom, that he provides for our daily bread, He forgives our sins, that he delivers us from temptation, that he does this through our praying. These are the kinds of requests that uh, God calls us to make. I have no doubt that we could make, uh, make a list of many other prayers that we're confident that God will answer, because these are the kinds of things that he's instructed us to pray for. I do think that this passage this morning is going to uh, stretch our understanding a little bit of what we ought to pray for and how we're to pray for one another. Now, we know that God is in the world doing miracles. We would say that largely those miracles are regenerating sinners. We don't live in an age of miracles in which God authenticates his messengers as they give new, new, new revelation that's going to become his word. We're not in that kind of age now. There's only been a few of those ages in human history. The time of Moses, amazing miracles was one of those ages. The time of the prophets, like, like, like Elijah uh, from, from, from this morning's passage, is one of those times. More than ever, more miracles than ever, when Jesus was on earth, as he was authenticated as God's son and then the apostles that he sent out. In this age, we don't bring someone who is paralyzed or someone who has been blind from birth to church to be physically healed. We know that we have God's word, so we don't need those authenticating signs to prove that God's word is God's word. And yet, if uh, you've read ahead in, in, in a today's passage, James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, shared a physical mother, Mary. James commands the early church to pray for God to heal one another. Now, we see no evidence uh, of, 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 
of anyone in the churches that James wrote to having miraculous or signed gifts. James doesn't call for those who had a gift of healing to do the healing. Instead, he calls for brothers and sisters like you and me to pray for one another because prayer is powerful. So I trust by God's grace we're going to be challenged in how we think about prayer, maybe somehow we think about health, how we think about God's power, how God's working in the world. But by God's grace this morning, we're going to become more humble and more praying people. And I think that's something we could all affirm we want to be, right? More humble and more praying. And if God moves us a little bit closer there, then amen, right? I'm going to read James 5, uh, and we're going to, I'll, 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 I'll start in verse 7, and we'll go through verse 18. Be, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I didn't give, give you much time to, to turn there. We're going to read James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. Let's uh, pray. Now, Father, we thank you for uh, your word, and we thank you that you uh, choose to work through prayers like those have already been prayed this morning, and even as I'm praying now. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, uh, do your transforming work in our hearts as your spirit takes the truth of your word and uh, transforms us into the image of your son. We do want to become more like him, to pray more like Jesus prayed. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to begin here by looking at what is a really neat picture of spiritual health. If uh, you were to make a list of, uh, of what spiritual health is like, you might, not have, you, you might include praying, but here is a really, uh, uh, a really sweet verse in, in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And perhaps maybe that sounds too simple uh, to be a picture of spiritual health. Do I both pray when I'm suffering and sing praise when I'm happy? But the way you answer that question 
in both parts is really a key indication of your spiritual health. James speaks broadly here of two kinds of experiences. One is suffering. It's when we face hardship, uh, misfortune, unpleasant circumstances. And the noun form of the word here, suffering, was used in James 5.10. And uh, we had just read that. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take, 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 a, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James had been writing about being steadfast as we go through trials, as we go through suffering. Now, this suffering, it, it, it could be persecution, but it, it can also include any difficulty, any hardship. It could include a bad bout of headaches, a, a business loss, a sleepless night, a bad grade, a scary diagnosis, a, 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 a betrayal. It's suffering. That's one kind of experience that James writes about. The, 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 the second kind of experience is not specifically a different situation, but a different response. He says, is anyone cheerful? Or, or, or of good cheer. Now, it is interesting that uh, uh, this verb is used two other times in, in the New Testament. Not that James had the, 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 the book of Acts, but it gives a, a neat picture of what this feeling is. And the scene is uh, during a storm when Paul and those on a boat are in danger of being shipwrecked. So that's not exactly a time we think of as good cheer. So listen to, 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 to the scene in Acts 27, verses 20 and 21. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, that is a storm, right? And no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned since they had been without food for a long time. Okay, so that is not your, your, your normal situation of good cheer. But Paul encourages those in the boat in Acts 27, verses 22 to 25. Uh, Yet now I urge you, and here's our word, to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God, Paul says, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And then he says it again, so take heart. Be of good cheer, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. So Paul called on those in the storm to take heart, to be cheerful, because God was going to bring them safely through this shipwreck. So whether you're in the moment that you're being crushed by your circumstances or whether you're hopeful because of God's promises, our prayers shouldn't match the emotion of our hearts. Whether in prayer or in singing praise, we're to pour out our hearts to the heart of God. Spiritual health is a, a pattern a, a, a practice of humbly opening our mouths to God in every circumstance. That's what it is to be spiritually healthy. The normal direction of our heart is to be upward. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but on your, your, your driving app, on your map app, 
on your phone, you can lock a little compass icon uh, so that the top of your screen always points north. I guess that's useful if you like to know if you're going east, west, or south in the hope of maybe someday learning where you are. But you can lock it so that it points north no matter what path you are on, the top of the screen is always north. Our hearts should lock onto our Father's throne. Whether the night is dark and stormy or the day is bright and sunny, the Lord wants to hear from you in all circumstances. Our God's eagerness to hear you doesn't change with your feelings. Now, we may be tempted to respond to, 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 to disappointment, to hardship, with those difficult circumstances, with anger, with stress, anxiety. We may be tempted to respond by, by, by escaping, surfing the internet or watching television, with complaining against God, grumbling against one, one another, as James has talked about. But instead, we must bring our request to God. Trusting his decisions and looking to him for strength. So we may be tempted to respond to disappointment in that way. But we may also be tempted to respond to times of blue skies and smooth sailing and good feelings in a wrong way too. We may be tempted to respond with a, a self-focused, self-indulgent attitude that tries to milk all the pleasure we can get from our circumstances. What a beautiful day. I want to enjoy more. Instead, we ought to sing praises, giving credit to God for what he has done. When times are hard, we're to express our dependence in prayer. When our hearts are encouraged, we're to express our dependence by praising. Whether the seas are storm-tossed or calm, the Lord must be the harbor to whom our ship sails in both prayer and praise. Now, I want to take this a, a, a step further here. I think that James has praised following prayer for a reason. See, our response to trials is one of the predominant themes in the book of James. And if we go back to the beginning of James, and you can go, go ahead and turn back just a couple pages to chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, J James begins his book by talking about trials. He says, "'Count it all joy, my brothers,' When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's James 1, 2 through 4. James calls us to consider or to count trials of joy because of the maturity that God is producing in our lives, not the things that in themselves are pleasant, but because of what God is doing with them and through them. See, but viewing trials as joy is not our, our natural instinct. Doing so requires wisdom from God. James 1.5 says, if you, any of you lacks wisdom, like that's hard to do, you're going to need wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, all without reproach, and it will be given him. So I wonder as we come near the end of the book of James, if, if maybe James is thinking about the beginning of the book. And James has that same process in mind when he says in James 5.13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. See, when we suffer, 
We are to pray for wisdom. Now, we can bring other requests to God, but definitely one of the things we ought to pray for is wisdom, right? Wisdom to see our suffering the way that God sees it, to see it as accomplishing in our lives what God is accomplishing. As we pray for wisdom during our suffering, we remember God's purpose, right? We, we, we don't act like those who don't have a God uh, who, is, who is out of control, right? No, God has a, a purpose in our suffering. And it's when we believe God's purposes that we can count trials as joy because of what God is accomplishing in our lives. If we're not believing that he has a purpose in it, it is impossible to count them as joy, right? They are hard. They are bad. They're not good. But when we believe that he has a purpose in them, we can count them as joy because what he's accomplishing in our lives. And what do we do as we start seeing God has a purpose in the suffering? I can count them as joy. At that point, we ought to sing praise. From suffering to prayer to promise to praise. And right there in that little verse, we see such a picture of spiritual health of, of what God is doing in our lives. In your suffering, in your hardships, in your disappointments, are you praying that you may count your trials joy? Are are you willing to pray so that then you can take heart and that you can sing God's praises because of God's promises, even if the circumstances that you're suffering through don't change? Are you willing to say, no, God, yes, I'm bringing this request to you. This is hard. I want to count it as joy. I want to be able to sing in the midst of this. I want to be able to rejoice in you in the midst of the suffering. See, that kind of willingness to sing and to rejoice requires the kind of single-mindedness that James pleads for through, 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 throughout the book of James. In James 1, 6 through 8, uh, he encourages them, let, let him ask in faith for this wisdom, with no doubting, do I really want this wisdom or don't I? For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. See, this beautiful picture of spiritual health, of, of praying to God in our difficulties and rejoicing in our good cheer, that's a single-minded request for a wise heart. See, a double-minded man enjoys the good without really thanking God and then resents the bad by blaming God. God's only good to him when he gets good things. But a single-minded man, a unified heart, counts the trials as joy because of what God is accomplishing in his life. He, He rejoices both in the fact that one day he's going to be exalted when he's brought low And also that he rejoices when he is humbled, when he is, when, when, when he is, when he is exalted. He prays to be steadfast under trial, but he's also of good cheer because he knows that he's going to receive the crown of life. And that's some more of James 1 there. 
He prays to be steadfast under under trial, but he is also of good cheer because he's going to receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Spiritual health is turning every situation, every circumstance towards God in praying and in praising him. So it's it's a great place to pause and to ask yourself, am I spiritually healthy? Do I run from God when things are hard? Do I put up a brick wall because I'm not getting what I'm wanting? Do I ignore him when things are wonderful? Wow, what what a great day. I'm going to go and have some fun and please myself. Or in all of those things, are you praying and praising James knows that there are circumstances in which prayer and praise become so difficult that you need to call others to pray for you. There are circumstances that are so difficult that you need others, uh, you need to call others to pray for you. And so we're going to look now at an appropriate response to his sickness in verses 14 to 16. I'm going to read them again to refresh us. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And uh, I hope by God's grace, you see that uh, I want to handle uh, this passage with a lot of of humility and dependence. There are aspects uh, that are a little less clear and that different uh, uh, in, in, in interpreters, godly, faithful men, have different takes on. Um, and it was neat. I was, I was, I was listening to, 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 to a message by, by Alistair Beggs, and uh, the second of the two messages, he finishes by kind of talking about how he's going to see, uh, see, see, see John Calvin in, in heaven one day, and they're going to go back and forth, and how John Calvin's going to say to Alistair Beggs, you should have listened to, to, to me, and Beggs is like, oh, no, you, you were wrong. And, um, um, so you know that we are in good company if we leave here with some questions, but we're going to try to do our best with the text and to let the things that are clear be, be the clear things. And, uh, and you'll see that we are to respond to sickness by confessing our sins and by requesting others to, to, to pray for us. Nothing else, that's going to be very clear. Um, but, but, but I think that we're going to, 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 to go further than that. We're really going to learn a lot about prayer uh, by, by God's grace, and, and, and some even about health. Let's us see and go forth dependently. Um, so I think James may, and I think in may there, bring up this topic of, of sickness here, because in sickness, we may struggle to pray, and we need others to pray for us. And there does seem to be a seriousness with this with this sickness, I'm not saying that this person is hopeless, but they are aware um, that, that, that in their state, they would benefit from others praying for them. And if you've had times of serious sickness, you may have gone through that experience um, where you are having a hard time praying and you're having a hard time rejoicing. You're having a hard time praising. 
and you are eager for your brothers and sisters to be in prayer for you. In verse 14, James says, is anyone among you sick? Now, often in the New Testament, this word sick was used of those who were seriously ill. The word was used to describe Lazarus in, in John 11.1 1, and Dorcas in, in Acts 9.37, both of whose sicknesses led, led to a death. In Philippians 2.27, uh, uh, Paul, Paul, Paul speaks of, of Epaphroditus, that he was ill near to death. Now, it's true that the word can be used for a range from, 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 from weakness to being long-term uh, sick, like uh, the a man in John 5.5 5, who had been, uh, been sick or, or, or an invalid for 38 years. So that same word can, can, can be used for that wide range. But I think that James has in mind, again, I think, uh, those who have become, become seriously ill and maybe surprisingly ill. Maybe. maybe. Seriously ill and surprisingly ill. When we become sick, our Western culture has trained us not to look for a spiritual cause. We've been trained to go to a doctor and get, and get some tests done, right? And if that doesn't uh, go well, we've been trained um, to find some, some kind of spearmint oil or something to, to rub on it, which is another kind of training. But largely, we're trained to go to doctors, right? But God's word is clear that there may, be, there may be a spiritual link between your physical sickness and your spiritual health. Verse 15 says, if he has committed sins. Verse 16 says, confess your sins to one another that, 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 that you may be healed. So twice he brings up confessing sins. Paul warns the, uh, the uh, Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 29 to, to, to 30, in the context of the Lord's Supper, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. The Corinthian believers were ill and even had died because of their disregard of the Lord's Supper. I think that many of us don't live in that world in most of our day, right? We, we, we just don't think that there could be a link between our sickness and our spiritual health. Paul does. David also experienced physical sickness following his, his adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of, uh, of Uriah. We see that in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. We could also see this in Psalm 38, verses 3 through 8, when David writes, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your, of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Verse 5, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. See, the Lord uses sickness to discipline those he loves, and that's out of love. He forces us 
at times to deal with the reality of unrepented sin through sickness. But not every sickness is evidence of sin. I mean, ultimately, it it is because Adam sinned and we live in a sin-cursed world, but not because of the individual sin. Job had loathsome sores from the top of his head to his feet, but they weren't because of his sin. Job's friends wrongly interpreted Job's suffering as God's discipline, and they proved themselves to be horrible friends. When we have prolonged sickness and weakness, Scripture teaches us to examine whether the Lord is disciplining us because of unconfessed and unrepented of sins. James commands the sick in verse 14. And that's some, 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 some background the Bible's teaching on this and why James is going to talk, talk about confessing sin. Uh, but James commands the sick in verse 14, let him call for the elders of the church. So the person who, who, who is sick, let them call, call for the elder. For the elders. Now, the fact that the elders are, are, are summoned and that they pray over him so, suggests that this person is too sick to go, to go to the elders, perhaps even too sick to, to a sit up. There's a sense of praying over him. One reason that the elders are called for is because they can help the sick person examine their heart. See, elders and pastors are, 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 are shepherds. We're called to watch over souls, especially in their weakened state. The sick person needs a skilled spiritual friend. They need that skilled, skilled spiritual friend to ask questions gently regarding whether there, there is any unconfessed sin or, or areas in which they are not willing to submit to the lordship of Christ. You can imagine the person who you want coming to you when you are so sick that you need someone to come and pray and pray for you. And really, I, and we want to keep growing as your elders and pastors to know you well as, par, as partially why we're doing the, 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 the uh, pastoral visitations. We want to know you so that we want to care for you. We want you to feel comfortable with us in your sickness, to, to, to ask questions like, 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 brother, sister, is there any sin in your life that you haven't been dealing with? Is, is, is your conscience guilty? Calling the elders to pray is an indication that the sick person was willing to be asked such spiritually sensitive questions. And by God's grace, the elders would do that in an attitude of gentleness. Now, another reason that the elders should be called is that the elders are to be righteous, right? That, that, that they should be modeling a life of obedience. Now, we're going to look more uh, uh, the second half of verse 16 in a bit, but it says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You want righteous people to pray for you. The elders should be examples of righteousness. That doesn't mean uh, being perfect, but a model of what righteous living is. So if you want righteous people to pray for you, at the top of your prayer list should be elders. And if you don't think that is us, you should talk to us. Please. Okay. Um, now, this... Uh, the 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 uh, command here is to have the, 
let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. So the elders are, are, are commanded to pray, but there is a physical symbol that accompanies this prayer. It says, pray over him, anointing him with oil in, 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 in the name of the Lord. We see that in verse 14. Now, this is the only time in the New Testament where, 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 where this practice is mentioned, though there is a, 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 a similar practice in Mark 6, verses 12 and 13. The Gospel of Mark records that the disciples who had been sent out by Jesus went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. So they, so they had proclaimed the good news of Jesus coming. And it says that the disciples cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and, and healed them. So that's the closest reference we get. I think that this, that, that, that this anointing, uh, this, this kind of dabbing or, or, or putting on oil, pouring maybe, is to visibly demonstrate that that person is being set apart for the Lord's, for the Lord's attention, that, there, that that is being done in the name of the Lord. Of course, we know that God sees everywhere, but we're saying about that sick person, Lord, um, we're entrusting them to you. Now, the oil would be encouraging that the Lord is present. This, this, this is being done in the name of the Lord. Jesus is always present, um, but that he is a, able to heal. There are some really neat verses that, uh, uh, that, that tie together anointing with oil and gladness. And one is, is a prophecy of Jesus coming as the Messiah in Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. And as I start reading this, you're going to be like, I've heard those verses many times. Um, um, and the prophecy is, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, is is upon the uh, Christ because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of of ashes instead of mourning, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. To the sick, this oil of gladness would be a physical manifestation of the Lord's favor, right? This is someone who is right with the Lord. The Lord loves them. So James, so James continues um, with the result of a certain kind of prayer. Now, 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 now notice that this is not healing oil, right? That God is going to respond to a certain kind of prayer. It is the prayer that heals, it says in the beginning of verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So there is a kind of prayer that will bring healing. He describes it as a prayer of faith. Now, Jesus talks about the connection between prayer and faith in Matthew 21, verses 21 and 22. Jesus spoke about praying in, 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 in a faith when the disciples were surprised when a fig tree that Jesus cursed 
withered at once. Okay? And so it says, uh, Jesus said, after they were surprised that what Jesus said happened, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So there is a prayer of faith that moves mountains, that withers fig trees, and that heals the sick. So how can we get this kind of faith that leads to prayers that will be answered? Because Jesus isn't just like teasing them. There's a prayer of faith out there, but you're never going to get it because I don't want you moving mountains. Now, uh, so far, God has never moved a mountain in response to a prayer of faith. I think that there's good reasons for that because it is not God's will. But how, how do we have prayers that we know are going to be answered? And so my best uh, answer to that question is to know what God's will is. And if you know what God's will is, you know that God is going to answer those prayers because those are the prayers that you can pray, you can pray in faith. So now we're going to look at three passages in which God says your prayers are going to be answered. The first is in John 4, verses 13 and 14. And it'll probably work best if you go ahead and turn there. John 4, verses 13, I mean, John 14, verses 13 and 14. Sorry. John 14, verses 13 and 14. I'll, I'll begin by reading it. Jesus says in the upper room discourse here, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, verses 13 to 14. And I'm glad that I know that you're not going to be thinking about that in a flippant way, right? Right? We're not just going to say, well, I'm just going to ask in Jesus' name for a Tesla and he'll do it. One characteristic of this prayer that God grants the one that Jesus says he will do, is that it's a prayer prayed in Jesus' name. And again, that just doesn't mean tacking on Jesus' name. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray with his, with his priorities and with his purposes in mind. To pray in accordance with his values so that the Father would be glorified in the Son. Praying in Jesus' name is coming into the Father's presence because of the redemptive work of Christ with Jesus as our high priest to ask for the kinds of requests that Jesus himself would ask in order that the Father would be glorified. And that is a high calling, praying in Jesus' name. So that's John 14, verses 13 and 14. Just a, probably a page over in your Bibles, John 15, verses 7 through 8. Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Again, this is clearly not uh, Jesus being a genie and granting us whatever we wish. Uh, he has clear Stipulations. The person who has their prayers answered is one who abides in Christ and in whom Christ's words abide. To abide in Christ means to stay with Christ, to submit to him, to rely on him, 
to believe in him, to have him as our our chief hope and as our joy and to be cherishing communion with him, to have him the center of our lives. For his words to abide in us is to have our hearts saturated with his heart as we dwell on his truth, to have who he is transforming who we are as his words are mauled on and chewed over by us. It's to increasingly think as Jesus thinks because we think on the things that he's spoken. As we meditate on his truth, our desires are shaped by what he's made clear in his word and and what he says. Verse 8 shows that we're to be motivated by the Father's glory in our bearing, authenticating, God-pleasing, spirit-empowered, Christ-like fruit of obedience. Now we go to the third passage, also uh, recorded by John. This is in 1 John 5, verses 14 to 15. 1 John 5, verses 14 to 15. These passages are, are, are very important if you're interested in praying according to God's will, prayers that you can pray in faith. 1 John 5, 14 and 15, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. What a promise. All of our prayers must be submitted to the Father's will. Even as Jesus prayed in in the Garden of of, of Gethsemane, that the Father's will be done. As he prayed in Luke 22, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There are some requests that we know are God's will. We can pray them with a certainty that God is going to answer like our growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or our sanctification. There are prayers that we can pray knowing that God is going to answer. Those are prayers that we can pray in faith. So in summary, what is this prayer of faith? The prayer of faith that will heal someone, and let's try to pull these together here, is a prayer prayed in Jesus' name, with Jesus's priorities in mind? It's a prayer prayed by someone who is abiding in Christ, who's being saturated with Christ's words. It's by someone who is obeying his, his commands. It's prayed, it's a prayer by someone who is motivated by the Father's glory. It's a prayer that is concerned with what God wants, with what his will is. It's a prayer that the sick person would be healed to abide in Christ and to bear much fruit for the Father's glory. Now, it's my best understanding that an elder could pray a prayer of faith over a sick person if the Lord were to give that faith. I would still imagine that elder praying if the Lord wills. If I imagine praying at your bedside, it's going to be if the Lord wills. Right? I'm going to be praying dependently, wanting his glory, wanting him to accomplish your will. Now, I don't know if that's the same prayer of faith that the person rises up right then. 
These are the kinds of prayers that are for God's glory, that are submitted to him, prayed by people who are living in dependency upon him, that Jesus promises are going to be answered. I do find, yeah, I, just to be honest, if you call me and I'm there, I, I, I don't think that I expect to have that prayer of faith. I think that God could give it if he wants you to, to rise. So we'll see what happens. When the prayer of faith is prayed, though, according to God's will, James says what's going to happen. James says that the sick person will be saved and the Lord will raise him up. Now, in the context of sickness and healing in Scripture, being raised is immediate. When the Lord answers such a prayer of faith, I would expect the person to be restored to health. As with Peter's mother-in-law in Matthew 8, 15, when Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Or the paralytic in Mark 2, 11 and 12. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he, he rose, it's that word, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And I'm imagining that that would be the response as well if the Lord raised someone up in response to the prayer of faith. We would be like, wow, we have seen God do something amazing. We know that not every sick brother or sister will be saved, and not everyone will be raised when the elders pray, because we're going to be praying according to God's will. In this world, Jesus hasn't eradicated sickness yet. He hasn't done away with death on earth. Our brothers and sisters in Christ fall asleep. We've seen two of them this past year. We know that's according to God's will. In 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul left Trophimus, uh, 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 who, who was ill. He had to leave him behind. He didn't heal him. He didn't pray a prayer of faith. Paul told Timothy to drink wine because of his stomach and, 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 and frequent, frequent ailments because he had ongoing sickness. Many have speculated whether Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12 was physical suffering that God was not pleased to take away. So the absence of this saving prayer of faith that leads to rising isn't a critique on those who've prayed or on the person who's sick. It's an important re reminder that prayer is God's mean, means to accomplish his will, not ours. Right? Prayer is God's means to accomplish his will and not ours. God's will is not for every sick saint to be healed. God's will is to bring some of our, his children home. It's God's will that others would continue in serious sickness and infirmity and disability so that he has brought glory as they trust him in their, suf in their suffering. You guys know of many brothers and sisters who have brought him incredible glory with, with their testimonies and faithfulness in the midst of of ongoing illness. James continues in, in, in 5.15, the second half, if he has committed sins, he, he will be forgiven. Notice that Jim, that uh, Jim, I don't know James well enough to call him Jim. Notice that James, <laughs> that James, that James says if, if, 
It is, it's possible that you've spent time reflecting on your sickbed or in conversation with the elders, and that time hasn't, hasn't unearthed any clear disobedience if he's committed sins. The, the sufferer could have a clear conscience before the Lord and, 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 and not need to be forgiven by him. But if he has committed sins, the sick can be confident that the Lord has forgiven him. And he's confident because God promises to forgive our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If there is a true confession and repentance, the sufferer will be forgiven, whether there's immediate healing, whether there's healing after a while, or if there's never healing. But if there was sin, God has used the this, this, this sickness in his grace to restore his child to a relationship with himself in which he is living again for Christ. So let me ask, if you were suddenly to be afflicted with sickness, does your conscience alert you now that there's a sin that the Lord is bringing to your attention Are you waiting for the Lord to discipline you before you take seriously sin you've been dallying with? Don't wait for sickness to humble you. Turn from that sin and run to the Lord for forgiveness and willingness to obey now. James draws his, his, his conclusion from this instruction in verse 16. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, notice this instruction to confess is to one another. The conf uh, uh, instruction to pray is to one another. These instructions are given to the whole body, not just to those who are super sick and not just to the elders. When we begin to suffer physically, we ought to have this humble posture confessing our sins to one another, and seeking their prayer. In fact, we don't have to wait to get sick. We should be confessing our sins to one another, praying for one another, so that you don't have to be healed. Are you one of those who would rather struggle in sickness than confess your sins or invite others to pray for them? From looking at this passage, I would say that that some of us may be forgoing healing because of a commitment we have to independence. Either we're unwilling to turn from our sins, we're unwilling to confess our sins to one another, or we're unwilling to have others to pray for us because it would be expressing need. The result of our confessing and praying for one another is that you may be healed. Healing is not about our pleasure. Healing is not about our freedom to pursue our desires. Healing is about our bearing fruit. We should desire to be healthy so that we can obey God's commands with as much freedom and devotion as possible. Our health shouldn't be about our freedom to please ourselves, but about God's glory. In a fallen world, you are not always going to have your health. We know that we're going to be taken away. We may become disabled at some point. God entrusts us with gifts of health 
for a limited time so that we can bring glory to Christ. If you are healthy today, that is for God's glory so that you can please him by obeying. As Paul says in, in, in uh, Philippians 1.23, to live in the flesh means fruitful labor for me. He entrusts us with this gift of health for this limited time so that we can obey him. That doesn't mean we can't obey him if we're sick. We can obey him too. But with your health, be, be zealous for good works. It's okay to pray for health because you want to do more good works and bring him more glory. Now, our desire for health isn't so that the world says of Christians, wow, what are, what, those are super healthy people. But instead, they might say, look at their good works. Their Christ must be worth serving. That is why we have health. It is because we want Christ's glory in our lives that we seek for righteous people to pray for us. And at the same time, if God has entrusted sickness or a long-term disability to you, that's also for his glory and the opportunity for you to bring glory to him. Health is good, though. So value health, pray for health, pray for one another's health so that you can be busy about making his kingdom, uh, advancing his kingdom, and not about your own personal kingdom. Now James says at the end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In the immediate context of healing, we see the value of someone who's righteous praying for us. So he's, uh, James is referring here to righteous brothers and sisters uh, who are living lives not perfectly righteous, but who are walking in fellowship with the Lord, who are, who are walking in obedience to his commands. They have been transformed by Christ, and the pattern of their lives is obedience. Those righteous saints have great power. There, there's, there, there's the ability to do much in their prayers. Psalm 34, verse 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. James reinforces that prayer has power by reminding of the, of the prophet Elijah in verses 17 and uh, 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, this story would have been well known uh, to, to, to the Jewish churches that James was, 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 was writing to. Elijah was a hero of the Jewish faith. If uh, um, Elijah was their superman, kind of. The story of this drought begins in 1 Kings 17.1. Now, 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 Elijah the Atishbite of Tishba and Gilead, said to Ahab, the wicked, wicked king, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except, except by my word until I pray again. That's some praying according to God's will there. The story picks up again in 1 Kings 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. That helps it, praying a prayer of faith if you know specifically from God that it is God's will. It's why we need to have our mind saturated with God's word. 
First Corinthians eight, I mean, First Kings eighteen verses forty-one to forty-five tells the end of the story. And Elijah said to Ahab, "Go up, eat and drink, for there's a sound of the rushing of rain." He hadn't even prayed yet. That's how confident he is. It'd be like being by the the, the side of someone sick and saying, "Get up," because I'm going to 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 pray. That would be tremendous confidence. Um, Elijah said to Ahab, "Yeah, to get up." At verse forty-two. So Ahab went up to eat and 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 to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees in a posture of prayer. And he said to his servant, go, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, the servant said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is raising from the sea. And then Elijah said to his servant, go Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. James knew that we'd be tempted to be frustrated with this uh, example uh, of, of, of Elijah. Elijah was kind of like, like well, as I mentioned they're a hero. So they would maybe be saying, as they mentioned praying like Elijah prayed, come on, James, Elijah was a prophet. Of course, God answered his prayer. He knew that there was going to, to be rain. God told him. But I love how James says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, like ours, right? Elijah was weak like us. In the next chapter, we, 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 we read of Elijah's own weakness. It says in uh, chapter 19 that Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She says, I'm going to kill you. And then he then says Elijah was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under, under a broom tree. Elijah was human like us. He was afraid. He thought his zeal for God would have resulted in a more, a more successful ministry. He thought he was alone. He was tired. He despaired of life. Like us, there are times when he wasn't cheerful enough to sing. Times when he had a hard time counting trials as joy. And so Elijah needed to be reminded of who God is just as we do. James' point is that Elijah was a weak, frail human like you and like me. But God withheld rain for three and a half years in response to Elijah's prayer. And God brought rain and ended the drought in response to Elijah's prayer. Miracles happened because Elijah prayed. Now, uh, James' James' audience would have been 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 more aware of what takes place in 1 King than we are. It's really interesting the example that James uses of Elijah praying. Okay? Um, between the prayer for drought and the prayer for rain, there are two other times where really Elijah prayed in super obvious ways. 
And one was there was a resurrection. And one, there was fire that came down from heaven. But James skips both of those miraculous answers of prayer. And instead, he focuses on this rain. And I think it's, I think it's interesting to ask why. James focuses here on a return to fruitfulness. Brothers and sisters, God will bring fruitfulness to the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ through your prayers. Your prayers will be the means of them praying and praising, of their spiritual health, of their persevering, of their cheerfulness in the midst of trials, of their being able to return to service. The God who created the universe with words doesn't need any tools, right? He just spoke. But he's chosen to use the tools of your words. He's chosen your prayers to restore others to fruitful service and to healthy prayer. Do you love God's glory being displayed in the lives of your brothers and, 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 and sisters? And I trust that you do. It's really what our members' meeting is going to be about, right? We love God's glory being displayed in the lives of his people. Then live according to his will so that you, the righteous, can pray according to his will. God will listen to your prayers and will accomplish his will in the lives of your brothers and sisters as you pray for one another. It's as you pray for one another that God is going to accomplish his will in their lives. Your prayers are going to be the, 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 the water pipes and the hoses that bring God's refreshing grace to the dry fields of your brothers and sisters in Christ so that they can again pray in their suffering and sing praise when they are cheered by God's promises. Your prayers are how God waters one another. God will pour the refreshing rain of grace upon them through your prayers so that they can pray in their troubles and rejoice when they're, when they're of good cheer. Let's pray now. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we want to align ourselves with what you call us to do 100%. Lord, we want to be people who pray in our hardships. We want to be people who rejoice when we're of good cheer. We want our lives to be directed to you. And we ask, Father, that you would help us uh, to be humble and to call out for help when we need others to pray for us, that we'd be people who are serious about confessing our sins to one another, we'd value others' prayers, and that we would be people who pray uh, for the good of others. We come before you. Uh, we, we don't deserve for you to even hear this prayer, Lord, um, but we trust that you answer this prayer according to your grace uh, so that you would help us to be a people who pray. In Jesus' name, amen.